Good morning, church family. I'm excited to have another opportunity to share with you the Word of God. We're now on week three of our uh, kind of journey through the book of Philippians and particularly looking at a life of joy. So, so far we've uh, heard from Pastor Gina a couple weeks and we've seen how Paul is writing of joy beyond his present circumstances. Rejoicing uh, in the, the shared work and the partnership with uh, churches around the area, in particular in this instance, with uh, partnering with the Church of Philippi. Even though he's away from them, he knows that they are carrying out the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of God. This past week, we saw how Paul's joy shone through even under uh, intense um, circumstances of humiliation while being imprisoned. And Pastor Gina shared with us a, a glimpse of what were some of Paul's experiences while in prison. And she also shared a definition of joy, which I want to remind us of and, and uh, for us to keep in our mind this morning. She shared that joy is more than just a mood, but a settled state of mind characterized by peace. And I want us to keep this in mind this morning in, in light of the text uh, so that as we unpack a little bit more in through the coming weeks what it looks like to really live a life of joy. So join me this morning as we read the text in Philippians 1, 27 through 30, actually. I know it says 32 up there. It's on page 1824 in the Blue Bibles. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now, now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. So those of us who've, who've been here the last couple of weeks, we've had a bit of a view into the circumstances surrounding Paul as he writes to the church in Philippi. We know that Paul is in prison, and it's believed that he's likely in prison in Rome at this point. We also know that he's writing after having already received word or a message, kind of an update about what's going on in the lives in the church and the Christians in Philippi. And so he's responding to them. <clears throat> And last week we heard how he's likely not just sitting in a jail cell, and while that may be extremely hard and we can't really, many of us can't really fathom how difficult that would be uh, in and of itself, but he's likely also being paraded through the streets of Rome, being spat on, beaten, and humiliated in front of Roman citizens. And it's yet in the midst of these circumstances that he's writing to the church in Philippi a letter 
about joy of all things. And more specifically, he's writing to encourage them and to share with them that the gospel, the message of the gospel, is still advancing even under these circumstances. So he's writing to exhort them to remain faithful amidst their own trials, their own outside pressures and and opposition that they're facing as they live as followers of Christ. Paul's primary concern for the Philippian church is for their relationship with Christ and their relationship with one another. He doesn't want to see it break down because of the outside opposition coming against them. And so in today's passage, we see Paul kind of pan the camera lens from himself and his own circumstances onto that of the church of Philippi. So you may ask, who is the church in Philippi? We know that Philippi was a major economic city center, and we know from uh, Acts chapter 16 that it was the first church planted in what is now modern-day Europe by Paul. He was on his second missionary journey when he planted it. And many scholars uh, comment that by the tone of this letter alone, that the church there holds and the relationship that he has with people there hold a very special place in his heart. He was eager to hear from them. He was thankful for their love and their financial and other support, knowing that they're praying for him. And he was hopeful to visit them again. We also know that Philippi was a kind of a unique colony within Rome. Its citizens enjoyed some privileges that many other Roman colonies did not enjoy, such as not having to pay all the same taxes to Caesar, and they were even allowed to, uh, to own their own property, which was uncommon at this time. And because of kind of these extravagances or, or special privileges there, uh, Philippians were known to have a special pride about them. And it comes, this, this kind of pride, and, and Paul speaks specifically to this pride and their citizenship uh, as Romans throughout this letter. We see it in today, uh, and then we'll see it in a couple of weeks when we look at chapter 3, as Paul reminds the church here that as followers of Jesus, their citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, not to Rome and to Caesar. So this is where we pick up this morning's text. Paul is urging the Philippians to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. The original Greek that, that, that Paul is writing in uh, can alternatively translate this, uh, this sentence as live in light of your citizenship to the gospel of Christ. He's using this language to play off the pride and the the, the strong sense of pride and the easy parallel that it would draw to the Roman citizens because they're so proud to be part of Rome and to be part of Philippi. You see, every day, the people, the church of Philippi, is surrounded by people who live as citizens of Rome, who enjoy living lives of extravagance, worshiping Caesar as a god, and also worshiping many other idols and material things. They're living against God's righteous commands, and they don't even know, in many instances, God's righteous commands. 
So Paul actually says in chapter 3 and gives us a glimpse into what some of the, the ways that the, the normal uh, Philippian city, citizens are living. He said, their gods are their stomachs and their minds are set on earthly things. So these are some of the, the pressures that the culture at this time is pressing in against the church. They were facing to, uh, things to, to party, to go out and drink, to eat as gluttons and to worship material things. And the fact that the Philippian church would have already been living differently, was trying to live differently, trying to live as God has called them to live, <clears throat> only by only worshiping God and preaching that Jesus is in fact the way and the truth, was probably rubbing people the wrong way. Actually making them so mad that they began to outright oppose them. They began to oppose Jesus and how they were living. The opposition to their faith from the world around them was tempting the Philippian church to respond towards fear and disunity among each other. And what Paul was referring to when he exhorted them to stand firm and not be frightened by the opposition. So today... I'm really glad that we've got this figured out, that it's really easy for us to not live in the culture. It's easy for us to say, oh, that's, that's bad, and we're not influenced by the culture around us. <laughs> not really. <laughs> um, as I was kind of thinking through this, I was like, man, I'm really glad that after over a thousand years um, of the church still messing up, us still messing up in these same ways, uh, that God is still faithful, that he hasn't gone back on his promise never to send a flood and wipe us out again. I'm so glad God is faithful. That's who we can rely on as a faithful God. He's going to give us and pour out grace on us. Because today we have so many of these same pressures, so much opposition to our faith. And while in America this opposition maybe hasn't come out as outright persecution as it does in other parts of the world, the opposition to the way that we live our lives is still hard. I remember when this kind of first became a reality for me. I was uh, in college. It was before I was married. And I was living uh, with a few um, what I would consider to be godly men. We, we worshiped the Lord. We went to church. We volunteered regularly. And for fun, we occasionally enjoyed uh, going out to the bar and, and grabbing a drink or something. I remember that over time, occasional nights out turned into a couple or a few times a week. And, and then it dawned on us and we started to have this discussion of, man, are we any different from those around us? Is it okay that we're going out and that we're, we're drinking like this? Is it okay that we're having these conversations? I mean, can people really tell if, that, that we're Christians? If we're going out and drinking and sometimes drinking a little bit too much, can they tell when we're joining into their conversations and we're carrying on with them that we're different, that we're followers of Jesus? And it was when we started to wrestle with this question that we were forced to grapple with, with what Paul is exhorting the church here to do, to live lives reflective of the gospel. Was that my life reflecting that I was a follower of Jesus Christ? At what point are we indistinguishable to the world around us? And then I look at the church today, at Gold Avenue Church, 
and the church all across the United States. And it may not be, the question on our hearts may not be, should I go out to the bar tonight? Or maybe it is. But we daily come up against opposition from our culture in America. We're daily being pressured by the media, by our co-workers, by our neighbors, our friends, and even our family to give up the values and the statutes that God gives us to live righteous lives. Perhaps one of the most common and pervasive ideas that we're fed that is in direct opposition to the gospel is this idea of relativism. And you may not have ever heard that word or that philosophy, but I can bet that you've heard, you don't have any right. Who are you to tell me what's sin? Who are you to tell me that what I'm doing and how I'm living my life is wrong? Sin is all relative. Who are you to say that what you call morally right and what the Bible says is morally right is right and and what I say is morally right is actually wrong? This is relative. This is moral relativism. This idea has pressed against the church and it's woven its way into our minds for so long that, that it's causing some churches to divide over what sin is and isn't and can we even call things sin? One major example of this is that the idea that maybe Jesus isn't the only way to God, but rather that there's, there's many ways. So it's okay that you don't worship Jesus. It's okay that you don't believe in Jesus. You can find your own way to heaven. That's the lie that our culture is saying. And that's the lie that is unfortunately woven into some church mindsets. But this stands in direct opposition to what Scripture says. That Jesus is the only way to the Father. And as a result, we've begun to separate ourselves and judge our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than seeking the Lord through the unity of his Holy Spirit, rather than praying for them and praying with them. We've begun to fear what other churches teach, and we fear what the world is doing around us. Fear has caused us to give ourselves over to speaking poorly of others, even to hating them, rather than loving them, rather than striving to work with them, to pray with them, to come alongside of them. Hmm. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we could work more together? If we could strive together, if we showed the world that in our striving together, in one spirit, that we're different, if we strive together as Paul is exhorting the church in Philippi to do, then we would stand apart and our lives really would reflect the gospel more and more and more. I want to tell you, a really, it was a really fun story and experience for me this past week. Um, I had the privilege uh, once a month to, uh, to gather pastors and ministry leaders um, from the West Side neighborhood uh, from multiple churches, and, um, and this past week there were about five of us who met together. And this is a time that we kind of lead a time of prayer, praying for, uh, for you, our congregations, our, our neighborhood, the west side, and for our city. And 
completely unprompted by, by any leading of anybody in the room, uh, the Holy Spirit began to, to work in our hearts. And he brought the five of us, all from different contexts, all from, um, not all from like the, the Christian Reformed Church, there are some from some more charismatic churches or, or Baptists and um, some in kind of like the house church or um, kind of church planning model there. And the Holy Spirit moved us to confess sin, to express forgiveness, and to bless one another's ministries for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was as the Lord was showing up powerfully that his Holy Spirit was just guiding us to freely do this. And there was another moment when uh, Pastor Gina was praying for families, families in the West Side, that where there is brokenness, that, um, that reconciliation would be found and that unity would be brought back to that house. And it was during that, that prayer that she was praying that I felt like the Lord was giving me this this image, and it was reminding me of the story of Jericho. And so for those of you who maybe don't know that or, or can't remember it um, quite as well, it's um, particularly the story uh, Rahab was a woman, she, was, she lived in Jericho, and uh, Israel had sent spies into, into the town, the city of Jericho, to spy it out to see how they could destroy it, because that was kind of their next journey on their way to the promised land. And Jericho was known, known as a fortress, has huge walls that were impenetrable. And so the spies had gotten, gotten into the city, and then they were found out that there were spies there. So Rahab hid them, and later helps them escape, uh, Scripture tells us, helps them escape through a window in the wall, because her house was part of the wall. And so the image that I was given during this time of prayer was of, of when houses are broken, when the church is divided, when, when people within the churches are divided and not striving together in one spirit, that they begin to rebel against that city, like in Jericho, or rebel against the church, and they let spies in. And we begin to, to fear. Because the, the passage in Jericho talks about how the people of Jericho knew that God's people, the Israelites, were coming and they were struck by fear. So much so that all the, all the Israelites had to do was walk around the walls and blow trumpets and shout. And God, through the fear of God, his power crumbled the walls in the city. So it was during this time that I felt like the Lord was showing me uh, that, that fear can cause such disunity. It can break us apart and it can cause us to crumble from the inside out, when we're not in unity with one another. And now I'm not sure how common uh, similar gatherings with pastors and ministry leaders are around our city and the world. I know I've, I've heard of some, um, but I hope that they are normal, and I hope that they become even more normal, because the ways of this world are in direct opposition to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we need to be praying together. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we were praying with Servants Community Church, with West Point Church, with the Catholic churches, praying together for the advancement of his kingdom, blessing one another. See, these these opposing views to the truth given through Scripture and lies that Christ isn't the only way, that sin is all just relative, are causing us to fear as a church. And to begin to argue among ourselves 
or to not work together, to give in to division and disunity, and even forsake the gospel, that Jesus is the only Son of God, that he died to take away our sins. The lies that sin doesn't make us unworthy. That sins, Jesus died, that the sins that made it impossible for us to be in communion and intimate relationship with our God. The world tells us that our sin isn't that bad. That if God is is in fact all loving, he wouldn't send people to hell. Yet the gospel says it's because he is all loving... It's because of this that he did the most loving thing of all. He sent his son to die for us, to make a way. See, God knew that it was only through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that could conquer death. He knew that we could never become worthy on our own by doing our own works, by, by volunteering and being good people. He had to make a way for us. He had And wanted, he was jealous for us, so much so that he wanted that right relationship with us. So he sent his son. That's the truth of the gospel. So this was the good news that Paul was reminding the church in Philippi in the text this morning. That God is the one who has graced them with salvation through his son. That he has given them one spirit. That spirit is the Holy Spirit. And it is through the receiving of the Holy Spirit that God grants them strength to persevere under pressure, under opposition, and face it with hope and peace. Paul's reminding them of their shared citizenship in the gospel. He's calling them to live out faith in the gospel, that they would be so obviously different from the world, not by the way that they condemn their actions as unrighteous and sinful, but by the way they live with joy and in unity with one another and in peace. And today, as Pastor Gina mentioned, today we celebrate Pentecost. It's 50 days after Resurrection Sunday or Easter, and we remember this as the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples in Jerusalem. It was Jesus' promise to his followers that he would empower them with the gifts that they would need to love God and his commands, to love people, and to take the gospel to all nations and all tribes. This is the same spirit that Paul was reminding the Philippian church that they had and they share with in unity with one another. Likewise today, as the body of Christ, we have been given the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to withstand the pressures and the opposition of our culture, the voices that tell us to leave behind our God and his righteous decrees, to forsake his ways and acknowledge that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit will strengthen us to not give in to fear and temptation, but rather to strive together as one whole body for Christ. Paul says, when we do this, the world will see that Jesus is Lord, that our hope and our joy and our peace cannot be shaken. 
and that it will be more clear to them of their destruction and our salvation. Therefore, in Christ, when our trust is in Christ and his Holy Spirit, we can hold one another up, remind one another of the hope that we profess in Christ, reminding each other that our citizenship is in heaven and that the way in which we should think and live in light of the gospel, a life not lived out of our present mood or circumstances or fear, but life lived from a settled state of mind, characterized by hope and peace. A life witnessing to the love of God, to the love and unity, not one of anger and hatred or disunity. A life marked by actions and words so different from our culture that we would have to share the gospel for people to understand who we are. Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing gift of mercy and grace expressed through the sacrifice of your son's death on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the reminder to the truth of your word this morning that our battle is not against one another and that we do not have to fear this world or culture and its pressures. Thank you, God, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to withstand this opposition, to know your truths and to stand in unity with one another, not in fear. Lord, this morning we ask that you would freshly pour out your Holy Spirit on us, that you would remind us that your spirit is not one of fear or timidity, but one of power, love, and a steady mind. And we pray that you would help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to speak well of them, to not give in to quarreling and division, but to seek your face, your truth, and your love in every moment, under every circumstance. We pray that our lives and your church here on earth would be seen as set apart, marked by peace, hope, love, and joy under opposition to the gospel. Amen.